Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Well, Nick Kelly, Head of Research, Willis Towers Watson, thank you very much for joining us today on Market Narratives. Thanks for having me, Alex. So let's uh, kick off the discussion around a paper that Willis Towers Watson has just put out, which is around the 20 years of of manager research and the evolution. I'd like to sort of get your background in terms of how you've seen the teams change over the last time that you've been at at Willis Towers Watson. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we we have seen considerable development and evolution in investment teams within investment managers over time. I think managers have become more accustomed to dealing with a broader array of clients and investors. And so, therefore, the teams have had to sort of evolve over time as well in respect of that. In some asset classes, you know, there have been significant, you know, there's a number of asset classes which are relatively new, right? So, take private debt as an example. that's only really evolved over the last you know, five to seven years. And so many of the teams there are sort of being pulled out of banks. And so the way in which they're operating is is very different to a, a banking environment, right? Where you in, you know, instead of that environment, you're now managing third party capital. And so I guess the the evolution that comes with that, how teams operate and and I think an understanding by investment managers that they need to tailor products to the needs of the to their clients. Right, that that one product doesn't suit all, and so there, there's a requirement to be really flexible in the way in which they they deal with clients. I'm curious, you know, when you're looking at at teams that have been now sort of spun out of a bank, for example, mm. versus built up on their own, and they've created their own uh, management firm, investment management firm. You know, how much do you see a difference in the type of people that are coming out of you know, a bank, for example, in terms of particularly entrepreneurialism, the innovation, uh, and and even maybe potentially performance. Yeah, it's a really good question. It it differs quite considerably between organisations, and and often it could be a a manager that sort of, you know, has a small presence in in one asset class, and then has effectively pulled a team out of the bank to to run a separate strategy. And so then the question becomes: Well, that team had its own its own sort of culture and the, their own sort of skill set and, and how does that mold into the new organization? Is it going to work? Are they well aligned? And so I think we do see, you know, asset managers take their time with those sorts of acquisitions and pulling teams out and that just ensuring it is going to work. It's got to work for both parties so that there's the sort of financial metrics of the transaction, but there's actually the long-term success of it, whether there's the appetite of the team to come across and, and how that's going to work in practice. And as you said, is a team that's being pulled out of an organization like a bank bank going to have the sort of entrepreneurialism that a you know someone that's found an asset management organization is going to have do you want that you know, in some cases you absolutely do in other cases depending on the strategy and the skill set you're looking for you may not you're looking for something very different right and so it's it's sort of the combination of the two and how it's going to work in practice and whether the cultures are sort of sustainable long term together is probably the key thing. The other challenge that sort of comes to my mind is that because asset managers are trying to diversify their their mm. strategies, they're, they're looking to diversify their revenue streams, they're moving into yep. more and more asset classes, but there's a lot of technical skill that comes alongside moving Absolutely. into different asset classes. How often has that been successful? I would say a small number of cases where it has been, to be clear. You know, our view is you need specialist skills to operate in asset classes. 
right? And so you tend to, our preference is, is tended to be work with managers who operate more sector focused strategies, um, where there is that specific skill set rather than the sort of broad multi asset focus. And I think that the other challenge that we've seen over time is that if you think about the evolution of an asset manager from the point at which they're sort of founded, and there's a, maybe a couple of people, including the key investment professional, investing capital to, you know, over time getting bigger and bigger, you know, increasing fund considerably, and then getting a much bigger team is they move or more from managing investment risk to effectively managing business and enterprise risk. And that's a real challenge in the sense that often when you're going to invest, you actually want, you're trying to tap into the investment risk piece, right? And so there, therein lies the challenge of actually trying to isolate the skill that we're trying to you know, the piece of the puzzle we're trying to, to pick from that manager, right? What role they're going to play, right? And so often it's actually working with the key investment professionals to structure something very bespoke to say, we want to tap in to your expertise as an investment professional. We don't want the big multi-asset strategy that is the vast majority of fun of the organization because often there's not sufficient amount of risk being taken in that strategy, right? Because all it is doing is supporting the big beast of the business that is now being built. We want to isolate the skill and often what that investment professional did, you know, 15, 20 years ago when they founded the firm, right? But over time, their role has changed. They're now managing people. They're managing a business. They're not just managing investments. I think that's a it's a real challenge for many of these managers as they grow. Uh, yeah. Initially, it's a couple of people, maybe three, four, five, yeah. and they're really focused on the investment piece. As they grow, it then becomes this, this business. Uh, yeah. You need marketing, you need distribution, and, and it starts to sort of lose its focus. You know, How much do you then sort of try to work out do they have the right operational people there to support the investment people, you know, or should the investment people be alongside the distribution people? How do you think about that balance? Yeah, that, that's spot on. And it, it is hard. And and often the key investment professional, you know, ends up in that role as sort of the, the head of the business or CEO, but it's actually not their skill set. Their skill set's investing, investing capital, right? And so it's actually, now some people can do it, but some are better placed actually having the business management support alongside them whilst they still retain you know, the overarching sort of decision-making around investments. The operational support piece is absolutely critical. I think, you know, much like asset owners, particularly in the Aussie market, given the raft of regulations we're facing, that that has hit asset managers too, right? They've got bigger ops, team, ops teams than they've ever had, more reporting teams, more distribution channels, given the, the sort of broader array of client base that they've now got to deal with, right? And so that ops piece is, is really important. And so, you know, the, we often think about regs and, and what's facing asset owners and superannuation funds in particular in the Aussie market, but that has, you know, has flow and effects to the asset management community as well. I want to come back to one other thing which you were talking about in terms of the, the types of strategy and making sure that they've got specific skills. Mm. One of the other areas is around sort of geographical skill. Investing in private credit in Australia versus the US versus parts of it's Europe very is very, yep. very different. And so how do you also make sure that these firms or these investment management firms are not sort of too straying too far out of their, their comfort zone? At the end of the day, it's assessing the team's skill set with respect to the opportunity set that they are going after. Right. And so there, there needs to be boots on the ground in those areas that they're targeting. Right. And it's going to be a very different set of individuals, a different skill set, depending on the strategy. I mean, you take private debtors example, right? You've got middle market corporate direct lending in the US is a very different skill set to doing infrastructure debt in Australia, real estate debt in Europe, distressed credit 
in you know the Nordic region, for example, right? Like it's just such a, bes- a specific bespoke skill set that you're trying to look for, and there's not one group that can do it all, right? And so it's it's having the boots on the ground and the right team on the ground with the right networks to be able to deliver on that strategy. But it is important because some areas will become crowded, right? And managers will look to other places where there might be a particularly attractive opportunity, right? And we want them to do that. We don't want them just investing because, well, that's where they've got some people and now there's a raft of other people coming in. And so it's now more competitive and and therefore less interesting from an opportunity perspective. But importantly, if they're going to to broaden maybe their remit, whether, whether it's a strategy or geography, there needs to be the team that comes with that, right? And so it's ensuring that they've got the right the right skill set, the all-round skill set to be able to go and deliver on it if it does broaden. That makes a bit of a challenge, obviously, for you and the team around sort of crowding mm. in, in asset classes. How do you then try to find the managers that will outperform, um, particularly as you're not just looking at the investment team, but you then need to think about the market that, that they're investing in. And I think that's the a real challenge. Absolutely. And, and you see this a lot, right? When certain areas of the market become frothy because there's a particular focus on it from a from a, a range of investors and so all of a sudden there's managers you know queuing up to raise capital to try and deliver on a strategy and so it, it's one trying to find the right group that has the sustainable competitive advantage over the others and that comes to the process that we have where we look across six key success factors to to have a view on skill and sustainable skill and and be able to deliver that alpha over the long term but also look at the opportunities where maybe others aren't looking at right and we had this situation in Australia five or six years ago where we did a bunch of research on healthcare real estate, right? And we saw healthcare as, you know, trading sort of 200 basis points above on a risk-adjusted basis in terms of cap rates. And it looked really, really attractive and no one else was doing it. And so then we went about trying to find someone that we thought could go and deliver on it. Now, that, that the number of groups operating that could deliver on at that point, a very small number, right? It's a much bigger number now because it's become a bit more competitive as others have come in. But there's that, that first mover advantage in looking at a broader sort of opportunity set where others maybe aren't as focused or, you know, often the argument of, oh, I'm not sure where that fits. If I hear that, I'm like, okay, now I want to know more because it probably means no one, you know, there's less people looking at it. And so they're, they're the sort of strategies to actually have a think about what we can do in terms of working with asset managers to create sort of a bespoke solution for our clients, a target of specific opportunity set where obviously they need to have the skill to deliver on it, but there might be an opportunity there that others aren't looking at. I'm curious whether you see asset owners that are asking for those sort of specific niche strategies to be developed for them rather than the traditional just standard products. Here's the product, here's the fund, invest. Yeah, I think there's been a growing demand for that as you know as as yields have come in and and markets become more and more competitive there is a growing desire to to access these parts of the market it, it is probably more driven from our sort of research team that's linked in around the world rather than specific clients saying I, I want healthcare real estate for you know in that case example that that was driven by us looking at healthcare thinking actually, this looks really, really attractive relative to the core sectors. Why are we not allocating here? What role can this play in a portfolio? Then educating clients on the role of that asset class within property, finding the right group, spending the time with them, and then developing a strategy from scratch and and seeding it with our client capital. So it's typically the relationships of the manager research team that's driving some of those initiatives. But on occasion, I I think, you know, when I've spoken to clients about that, what we're doing, they, they get it. 
you know, it's like, yes, that, that that's exactly what, you know, we want you doing, right? That you're the engine, you've got the relationships on the ground with 90 researchers around the world to go and do this, as opposed to just taking the stock standard product that an asset manager puts on the table, which is often, as I said, they put that on the table, that, that product is often to manage business risk, not investment risk, and they can raise capital for it. Okay, well, let's isolate the very best of that strategy and where they have a specific skill set and go and create something bespoke with them. Let's come back to to culture because I still think this is a, a key piece to performance in, in these funds. Yep. A lot of the funds have got some key figurehead, a key CIO mm. that, that leads leads the business. That's also very risky in the sense that they become, you know, almost this dominant figure in, in the market that is calls the shots, they're used for marketing, mm. they're they're rolled out everywhere. But it's also very risky because there is key man risk now. How yep. do you think about that issue versus the broader team of these organizations? Yeah, so when it's a really good question, and it's something that's you know when we talk about the evolution of our process, it's something that has evolved considerably over time. So we now undertake specific culture reviews with managers, and we effectively look at three key things: the employee value proposition, the client value proposition, and leadership. And those three things lead to an outcome or our view on culture. And culture is often defined as you know the way we do things around here. Right. And there's no one culture that fits every organization. I mean, there's often there's plenty of studies done on, on Bridgewater and their culture of radical transparency, which, you know, might work for them, but isn't going to work for everyone. Right. And so it's it's finding that sort of, you know, that secret source, if you like, with respect to culture and leadership and and owning it and running with it is probably the most important thing. But it, most importantly, it's got to be an inclusive culture that values the opinions of all within the team. It's leadership that understands the team, mentors the team, challenges the team, but it has to be inclusive, cohesive, and fair, right? At the end of the day, that, that's what we're looking for. There, there's some great words, but I think I, the challenge is getting them to work in practice. Yep. Being inclusive can also mean ostracizing certain people. How do you make sure that you, you think you work out almost the meritocracy of, of mm. the the fund so that the right people are getting promoted, right? It's very yeah. easy to get everyone to always have a say, but at the same time, you want to make sure that it is beneficial to the underlying process and the performance of the, of the firm. Yeah, I think fundamentally, you, you've got to spend enough time with the organization, right? You're not going to come up with a view of that meeting a manager a couple of times, right? It's as simple as that. And that's why we often we spend somewhere between six and 12 months with managers and, and researching strategies in extreme depth before we have a view on whether we want to back them. Right. And, and that you, you form that view that you've just talked about by spending sufficient time with them, sitting on their investment committee, watching the debate, watching how they include the team. You know, when we do the culture reviews, we have a broad sort of, we've obviously got the leadership team in the room, but often what we'll then do is, okay, then take the CIO out of the room talk to the team, maybe then take the PMs out of the team, out of the room, talk to the analysts or vice versa, just have the CIO, right? And so you're trying to get a sense from the entire team as to how it actually works in practice and not say something because the CIO is in the room, right? It's actually getting the various opinions and, and trying to form up that view over time based on our interaction with the manager as we've developed that relationship to say, does this, you know, they might've said all those words that I said before, but is this actually how it's working in practice or not? I think that's a really interesting evolution of, of research and it's mm. it's always tricky because people are always paranoid about their job and paranoid exactly. about am I going to get found out and, and yep. so forth. So, you know, how do you how do you maybe look at other areas such as incentivization of, of employees, sort of seeing whether they're aligned with the company or the CIO? How do you look at those sort of areas? It's a good question. So, one of those, I talked about those six success factors that we look at when we're researching strategies to, to derive sort of our qualitative assessment. One of those areas is alignment. 
and the way I think about alignment, I think I, I tend to think about alignment as three key things. Right. So it's equity ownership or ownership of the organization. Secondly is the fee structure and in particular performance fees, which by the way are just an option on the upside. Thirdly, how much of the, you know, what portion of capital is the team investing in the strategy? And importantly, how material is that to their individual net wealth? And it's those three things in combination in my mind that gives us an assessment of how well aligned the individual team members of an asset manager asset manager are to our clients. And so that's that's sort of how we think about it. But it is very much the combination of those three, right? So you can have an organization where the team are, you know, putting a chunk of their capital to work, which is probably the most pure form of alignment, but equity ownership might, you know, might be a bank-owned asset manager, which we know is is fraught with challenges. And we've seen plenty of blow-ups in the past with that sort of model, right? And they might also have a horrible fee model. So you're sort of sitting there going, hang on, you know, does this actually work? you know, is this going to stack up? Are they well aligned to the outcomes? Are they going to be there for the long term? And it's not just the incentive program, it's the broader employee value proposition that we talked about before that, that can create some of that align- that alignment and loyalty to an organization. I'm curious as to how do you see a difference between that alignment in some of the very large, bigger brands that we all know in asset management yep. versus maybe some of the smaller, more emerging managers? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I would say it, it is very different manager by manager. I think with some respects, it, it can be easier with some of the small emerging ones because of the, the equity ownership piece can, can be easier to manage if done well early on. That said, there are ways of having sort of long-term incentive plans, um, equity share plans in place with larger organizations. So I think, you know, often what you see is it's it can at times be an afterthought and, you know, an organization manager might grow, might lose some staff and then sit there and go, hang on, I need to, we need to do something right around retention. And then you trying to develop a plan from there. And it can become, it's, it's, it's not an easy one to get right, you know, to be clear. And as I said, because it's a combination of all those factors that comes into play. So I would say in some respects, it could be, it, it may be a, a little easier for, for some of the smaller ones to sort of get it right from the start, as opposed to the, the larger ones where sometimes it could get lost. That said, we have seen large organizations deal with it well through you know, LTIP programs, employee share option plans and the like to try and create a stronger form of alignment longer term. And also the benefit of a larger organization, if, if they've got more fun under management, then fees can often be, you know, we can, we can sharpen the pencil a bit more as opposed to a startup organization, which is still building out its back office and things like that. Yet the the, the startup one is probably more hungry, right? And so it's trying to marry all these together to get the right outcome. As I said, fundamentally, when we're doing this, we're thinking about our end clients and whether this manager is well aligned to the outcomes that our clients are going to get. How does the process of, of this evolution of, of researching these funds change in the sort of due diligence stage, pre-investment, and then post-investment post sort of once... Once the firms are invested, how does mm. that change? How do you then sort of look, what are you looking for? What what um, particular areas do you do you narrow in on? Say post investment. It's a good question. So I think post investment, you know, probably the key thing is you know, ensuring the engagement levels are still there. Right now, they've got the capital. Are they still engaged? Providing the you know adequate reporting, you know we've seen report as we talked about regulations before, but also you know sustainable investment reporting, reporting on culture, new additions to the team. So that aspect needs to be retained. I would say any form of style drift, right? So we're back to strategy that's planning to do A and B, and they're now doing C. And we actually had this as an example more recently in the Aussie market, a private market strategy, whereby the sort of went in 
targeting both social infrastructure and, and renewable infrastructure deals, but was probably more, and pr- probably, you know, initially when we we're undertaking the due diligence, it was the renewables space was particularly attractive. By the time we'd sort of completed our due diligence, we got comfortable with this manager, which was a new emerging manager, that space had become very, very competitive. And so I think some clients probably thought, well, it's going to be a heavy renewables allocation. It's ended up just being social infrastructure. Now, had they invested in renewables, they probably would have raised more capital because it's a space that everyone understands and gets. Yet the performance has been absolutely stellar because they've actually they they didn't do renewables because pricing just got too rich, right? And did some social infrastructure deals that are that are wonderful deals, but it didn't marry up with necessarily what was put on the what I'm what I think I'm getting, right? And, and it is important to understand what you're getting because it is in the context of your overall portfolio. Right, it might be that you've already got social infrastructure elsewhere. I was like, well, hang on, I was trying to buy this, not this. But equally, we don't want managers just to go and buy something because they've said they're going to do it if that space has got particularly expensive, right? So we want them to 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 steer away from that area. But equally, you don't want pure, you know, massive style drift where they're not doing what they said they were going to do and they don't have a skill set in doing it. Importantly, it's an interesting question around red flags, and and that's potentially yep. one which is yep. st- which is style drift. What other areas do you do you look at? Is it, for example, moving from? You know, we've seen in a couple of cases there's a yep. few managers where they've done uh, a lot of listed equity or listed uh, fixed income, and then started to drift into the illiquid space to to the juice up their returns. Yep. You know, what other red flags do you sort of see that that are concerning? Those exactly what you've just talked about. Any sort of rapid growth in fun. You know, if you know, and you see this with you know, in private markets with closed end funds. Maybe the first fund was two hundred mil, the next was five hundred, and then the third's two bill. You're like, well, okay, hang on. You expect it to be bigger, but what is an appropriate jump, right? Do you have the scale to execute on something like that? And now you're playing in probably a much more competitive space. Turnover is obviously key remaining close to the team and ensuring they remain incentivized for the long term. And there's not just a bunch of carry they've been paid out. And so they're like, okay, I'm off. I'll go start my own thing. Geographical sort of breadth in terms of looking at strategies elsewhere in the world, as we just talked about. Those are probably all the the obvious ones, right? But it's I think most importantly, it's it's maintaining a very close relationship with that manager that you, you know, you've built up during the due, due diligence period, but remaining close post understanding the deals they're doing, what they're looking at, why they're not looking at certain things, how many things they've said no to, changes at committee level, other roles that you know some of the independents have taken on, ensuring there's no conflicts, how are they thinking about diversity in their team, what's their recruitment plans now that they've got capital. You know, they said they were going to recruit. Are they recruiting? Who are they recruiting? Are they the right people? Is there enough challenge? You know, all the things that you've probably, you sort of looked at through the due diligence period, you continue to look at, right? Because often at the end of the day, we've, you know, we've retained a rating on that strategy. We now need, you know, it's a, it's not just a, a one and done, right? We need to continue to have a view on it. And if it's a closed end strategy, they're going to come back to market. Are we going to back them again? We're going to do full underwriting again. So we need to be comfortable that they're still skilled, right? And we still want to back them. That's that's the other challenge around the skill, the the alpha, yep. and whether they actually have a competitive advantage to deliver alpha. And I yes. think that's going to be, you know, it's very easy to tick all the boxes and make sure everyone's doing the right thing. They've got the right incentivization, right retention, right leadership. But you know, how much does that opportunity for them to hit alpha in their particular given given sector? You know, how much does that play as part of the whole manager research process? Yeah, it's absolutely key in that you know. Our, our process has evolved over time, but fundamentally, it's those six success factors. And it is it is qualitative research supported by, quant re, by quantitative analysis, right? There's a whole raft of statistical evidence that will tell you that looking at historical performance is not helpful. 
because often we'll pick, you know, someone that's performed well, you'll then appoint them. They'll subsequently perform poorly. You'll sack them. And we've seen this time and time again. And there's, you know, there's survivorship biases and there's all sorts of challenges with that model, right? And so whilst you can have, as you said, the right team, the right alignment of things, you know, one of those success factors is opportunity set. You know, are they playing in the right space, right? Is it too competitive? In which case, well, sorry, we're not there. You know, so it's it's got to be across the board. It's got to stack up. Or you might have, you know, there's, there's plenty of situations where you might see an attractive opportunity set, but not find the right group to partner with because they don't have the right team. They don't have the right alignment structure. They don't know how to manage a portfolio. There's been too much turnover, whatever it might be. So it's the combination of those factors that leads us to a view on whether that strategy and that manager is going to be able to deliver sustainable alpha over the long term. We're long-term holders. This isn't a short-term decision. So we need to get comfortable. And that's why our, our focus is very much a depth over breadth model f- for that very reason. You mentioned a little bit there earlier around the quantitative and qualitative research that you yeah. do. We've probably seen a number of new managers coming in, or manager research firms come in that have got really uh, strong quantitative approaches uh, and yep. trying to identify not so much the past history, but sort of understand the trades that they're doing. How does that line up with their underlying mm. strategy, their research process? How much do you think quantitative research uh, plays a plays a role in in managing uh, doing this manager research. Yeah, I mean it. It absolutely plays a role, but it's clearly not everything. If I think about, so my background is is private markets research, but if I think about our equity research team, they will put you know the manager portfolios through our variety of quant tools to see how trades have been undertaken, what style they're looking at, has there been style drift, where the concentration is, active share tracking error, et cetera, et cetera. Right, we've got all that data. They'll do that ahead of a meeting to then go in and quiz the manager on what's what that quant information is telling them. So it's it's the qualitative assessment supported by that quant analysis, right? It's not quant that then drives decision-making with a little bit of qualitative overlay. It's fundamentally a qualitative decision, but it is supported by strong quant. The quant will always be there. Right? If we're looking at private markets, it's looking at track records, it's looking at the sorts of assets they've invested in, when they deployed capital, when they chose to sell assets, or did they try and hold on too long? What sort of operational improvements did they make to those assets over time? So th- there's a very detailed assessment that's undertaken on the quant side of things, but fundamentally it supports a qualitative assessment. And those things need to marry up, right? Because a quant can tell you one thing and then you're in a conversation with them going, hang on, this this isn't making sense to me. And that could be a style thing or, or a change in opportunity set or, or where their focus has been. But it is fundamentally, it's a qualitative assessment with that that, that quant support, which is important. I think it's interesting that we've seen a number of uh, groups that are using quant research mm. really just to narrow down the amount of managers yep. that they're looking at yep. and try to yep. find who's different. Yeah, and we look, we're, we're doing that as well, right? We have a, a tool called a structured assessment method, which which effectively does that, right? That gives us that breadth piece, right? To then say narrow down strategies. But that said, th- there needs to be you know, the way in which we, you know, people often say, where's the idea generation come from, right? And the um, someone unhelpful answer is it can come from anywhere, right? So it can come from that method of, of using something like a, a, a sort of quant tool to narrow down the groups that look really attractive on paper that you then want to dig into in more detail. But it can also be relationships we've got in the market. We've all been researchers. We've got a, a, a very experienced team of researchers, some with 20, 30 years experience, right? So they're going to have relationships with lots of people in the market. So someone's going to call them one day at this back end of last year someone called that we've not backed before, but I've known for five or six years and said, look, I think we should look into, I think you should have a look at childcare as a space in property. And I was like, okay, let's let's have a look. Now, we're not going to get there at the time, to- at, 
at the moment for, for a variety of reasons, but it's those sorts of conversations is often where these ideas come from, groups that we probably might not have done something with, but have wanted to, or with that group, we actually wanted to do something with them and they didn't want our capital, which I always view as a very good thing because they just didn't think it was an attractive opportunity four or five years ago. You know, when people do that, I'm, I'm, I'll listen and we'll stay in contact. And so if something pops up in the future, we might be able to partner with them. That's the sort of, they're, they're the sort of group. So those ideas can come from, yeah, as I said, that that sort of quant tool to, to narrow it down or, or relationships in the market that could come from clients. I mean, it can come from a variety of areas. Now, we can't have a conversation about the evolution in manager research without talking about sustainability and ESG. It's, it's yep. everywhere. Um, it is I everywhere. guess the biggest concern is, is greenwashing and actually understanding what's being yep. done is, is true sustainability. And, and sustainability means many things to different people, right? It could be financial, systemic risk, it's climate, it's governance. There's a lot of issues. And so, how do you sort of break that down to actually work out you know whether a manager is actually doing what they professing to to put on the label yeah it's a it's a really good question we we have a and this is one area that has evolved considerably right for obvious reasons um and, and given our recently made a, a sort of net zero pledge uh, for our entire delegated portfolios globally by 2050 and, and to halve emissions by 2030 we've made a fair bit of progress in that space already i must say as a as a researcher it is ingrained in what we're looking for. And to your point, it's not the strategies that are blah, blah impact fund, because often those are, it's just a labeling exercise from a, from a business development perspective. They can be, but my point being that there's plenty of funds that profess to be impact that are not. And there's plenty of funds that don't have the word impact in their fund name that are driving an impact. And so it's really about looking under the hood and understanding what the strategy is, what they're targeting, and the belief system of the the manager and what they're trying to do, and whether there's sustainable alpha in doing that. But it's a combination of all those factors. Our sustainability questionnaires evolved over time to help us drive some of this. We provide a, a rating across E, S, and G across all the strategies that we rate, and we'll monitor that over time. And and that questionnaire that we use with managers has evolved considerably and is now far far longer uh, to the dislike of many of them. Um, that has been in the past, but it's because it is so important, right? And we do think there's going to be real alpha opportunities, particularly in the short to medium term as the repricing happens. So there's one better alpha opportunities, but there's also better beta, right? So things like stewardship is absolutely critical. You know, we are stewards of capital at the end of the day, and there's a role that we have beyond the strategies that we rate within the industry as a whole to improve this transition that we're seeing. It's a really challenging time because I think nobody will put their hand up and say, look, I'm, I'm against stewardship. I'm against ESG. Yep. No one will say that uh, because mm. no one wants to be ostracized and everyone wants to do the right thing. Yep. But there is yep. a real challenge around fiduciary uh, duty and returns and yep. sort of what can you do in different sectors of the market? You know, the, there's different asset classes where I think stewardship is, is, diff- is difficult. And so how do you sort of think about different parts of the portfolio as to what you can do today versus what you can do in maybe 15 years or 10 years or five years time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, you know, you take equities versus credit, for example, what you can do from a stewardship perspective and, and where credit managers are relative to equity managers, they're probably more in their infancy on that journey in what they're trying to do. But therefore, you know, we can focus on sectors. We've done plenty of things in credit on affordable housing, for example. So the S piece of ESG G is always fundamental, always been a key part of our, our research process has been the, the G piece. You know, if I think back to probably the last 20 strategies we've rated within private markets, so across real estate and infrastructure and natural resources, oh, I'd say three quarters have had a very strong E bent, E and S bent. You know, we did a strategy that was an EV 
electric vehicle charging station uh, strategy in the UK. Rated a strategy the other night, which is a forestry strategy, planting trees, which is effectively carbon capture. Now, the fund names don't have impact in them, again, to my point, right? But there is a clear environmental benefit of these strategies. And we think in the short to medium term, they will deliver because of a repricing that's happening. But it is, you're right, it's, you need to look far and wide. You need to absolutely take into account you know, the fiduciary duty piece, right? They, these need to, to deliver high-risk adjusted returns, right? We're not just putting capital to work to and pay, pay high fees on something to deliver an okay outcome just because it meets E, S, and G. That, that's not what we're looking for. Fundamentally, it has to stack up on a risk-adjusted return basis, but there's plenty of things that you can do that do that, that tick all those boxes and, and have a strong bent towards sustainability. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place to leave the conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Nick. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.